You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Uh, Imagine first that you are approached by an author, and this author says, I'd like to write a book about your life. Now, in writing a book about your life, I need to sit down with you at a coffee shop, and what we need to do is we need to go over what are the high points. And so you start to think about in your life, just think about this right now. If you're thinking about your life and you're, somebody's writing a book about you, what are the high points? What are the crescendos, if you will, that you want to be a part of this? And maybe that's difficult for you to figure out right away, but I bet what comes to mind easier is there's some things in my life I definitely don't want in that book, Right? I can think about some places in my journey where I have messed up really bad, where I have betrayed and been betrayed, where I have been hurt, where things have completely fallen apart. And if anybody's writing a book about me, I definitely want to make sure that does not happen in this book, that no one knows about this, right? I bet if someone's writing a book about you, you're probably thinking or feeling some things that you definitely do not want to be a part of the story that's shared out there. I, I think that's fascinating. Looking at, again, Mark's gospel today, we talked about this last week. Mark, the gospel of Mark, is traditionally thought to be the eyewitness account of Peter, written down by John Mark. And so if he's writing down this gospel, Peter is the one relaying this information to you. If you are Peter, hopefully you're thinking, if I'm giving part of my story as a part of Jesus's biography here, I'm going to make sure I leave out the bad stuff. The parts where I completely screw it up. And Peter, out of everyone in the Gospels, is usually screwing it up the most. I really identify with him for that very reason. But in this story that we just read today, it's one of Peter's biggest screw-ups, darkest moments spiritually, and he allows, gives the information to Mark to share this with what he would at least at that point have known would have been shared widely in the ancient world. Peter is willing for you and I to see him at his worst because in seeing him at his worst, we're able to see Jesus at his best. Sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes it's the moments where we are at our worst when Jesus actually shows up and you see him at his very best so I'm going to look at this again, what we read earlier here on the screen in Mark chapter 8. We're starting, starting a little bit further down here. It says, he then began, after he's confessed, he's confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, like many things in the scriptures as we're looking through this, Little words and phrases and ideas are meant to point you to something that happened earlier in the story. It's happening here. This phrase, the Son of Man, 
is a title that is a strange one if you're just kind of reading this on the surface, but it's actually calling us back to a specific passage in the Old Testament, this messianic passage from Daniel chapter 7, where this prophecy points to the coming of one who will make all things new, who will put the world to rights. Listen to this in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, This passage, this this prophecy happens in the context of a people under the yoke of oppression. Under the yoke of oppression, which the people of God had been for centuries at this point. This was a promise that all of this hurting and pain and violence and brokenness would one day be no more when the Son of Man comes in glory and power. So when Peter earlier in this passage says, hey, I believe you're the Messiah... That's what he thinks is coming. The Son of Man in glory and honor and power to make all things new. So it makes no sense that he would be rejected and murdered by the ones who are entrusted here to actually know and see his coming. It talks about the elders, the priests. The teachers of the law. This is the, sp- the spiritual and political authority of their day. The, the elders were kind of like the supreme court of that culture. The high priests were the ones who were in charge of the religious order of the day. And the teachers of the law, those are the theological teachers. Those were the scholars who studied the Bible and knew it backwards and forwards. And those are the ones... The ones supposed to know and recognize and see the Messiah that Jesus claims are going to come and reject him and kill him. Now, you can see why Peter may be just a little bit disoriented here. Death death does not happen to the ancient of days. Death does not happen to the one who is coming to make all things new. This Messiah, he's supposed to come and rule over the powers and the authorities. He's not supposed to be the victim of the powers and the authorities. He's not supposed to die by their hand. Peter is, as you would expect, disoriented. And something begins to well up in him. Something that cannot be held back anymore. Mark continues, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now stop for a minute and think about this. This dude is rebuking Jesus. Rebuking Jesus. Peter has taken it upon himself to correct Jesus's theology at this point. He's he's giving him the, well, actually right now, In this moment, Peter thinks he knows more than Jesus does. And in order to help Jesus, he brings him aside. And this is not just correct, it's rebuke. It is a forceful correction of Jesus' words from Peter. Now, what comes in response to this is what you would imagine Peter does not want to be recorded for all of human history. 
Verse 33 says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, not just Peter, his disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan. Okay. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He doesn't say, stop it, Peter. He doesn't even say, just, just hush your mouth, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, maybe this seems a bit harsh, because if you're just looking at this passage at face value, it seems like Jesus is bringing accusation. He is bringing this, this damnation on one of his closest disciples, and it feels sort of strange, like almost an overreaction. Why would you say, get behind me, Satan? I don't believe, though, if you look at Jesus's words and his heartbeat here, that he's actually giving an accusation. I think what Jesus is doing is naming the spiritual battle the battle that's behind Peter's words. The battle that's behind Peter's feelings. I love theologian Chris Green. He writes about this. That in spite of what some have said, Jesus does not name Peter Satan. He does not level an accusation at him. That would be to do the devil's work for him. And Jesus never does that. No, Jesus names for Peter what is happening in and through him so he can be free of it. And he reminds Peter of his place as a disciple. Get behind me. My Lord. I could just kick this over right now. That's so good. <laughs> Woo! Some of the enemy's best work, and we see this here with Peter. Some of the enemy's best work is when we decide, you and I decide, we have to protect God from everybody else. The enemy does really good work when we start thinking, you know what? It's my job to make sure God's reputation is held up. Still that way. Some of his best work, even today, is done in the name of Jesus, right? We see this over and over again. What Satan does is weaponize the faith of Peter. He weaponizes Peter's righteous indignation. He turns this holy zeal in on himself. And to this day, one of the enemy, Satan's biggest and most destructive tactics in our culture, he's happy for us to use the name of Jesus against the way of Jesus, right? Do you hear me? You know what I'm talking about here. It's when you do something and, and fight for something that's Christian, strong air quotes here, but in no way is it Christ-like. Do you all know, I hope, I've said this many times, I hope you know and can see, there's a difference between something that's labeled Christian and something that's actually Christ-like. We cannot call something Christian that is not Christ-like anymore. Christian is a weaponized label by political actors and power brokers that would love to you, you to get behind their agenda, but if it's not Christ-like, it's not what? Christian. We have to hold to this. Like Peter, you and I are often tempted to say we got to protect God. We have to protect our vision of what God is. But in reality, we're just project, projecting our own ambitions. We're protecting our reputation. 
the, the majority of the people in, in this time, in Peter's time, they would have expected this Messiah that we read about in Daniel 7 to be kind of like the heroes of the day, one that would march in and conquer over the foes with, with glorious displays of power and violence. And yet, immediately, Jesus is making it clear that that's not who I am. I am not what you are projecting onto me and what you're projecting onto the world. Mark continues, he says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I love this statement, a statement we need to hear loud and clear today. What good is it for someone, anyone, to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now notice first at the beginning of this passage we just read, Mark mentions that there's two different groups here. It says he called together the crowd along with the disciples. What's mentioned are the crowd over here, but then there's, there's some, some people who are different from the crowd. They're the disciples. We sometimes forget that Jesus, as he traveled throughout the countryside, as he traveled throughout Judea, was followed by a crowd of people, large crowds sometimes, and they're drawn to Jesus more out of fascination than faith. There's a difference. You can be fascinated by Jesus, but have no faith in him. You can be a fan of what he does and says, but not really have faith in him. Jesus is never hostile towards these crowds. In fact, the Gospels often say that he has compassion upon them. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't shy away at any point from delineating between those who simply gather around him because they're fascinated, they love to see the miracles, maybe they like the teaching, and those who actually follow him. To this day, my friends, there's a difference between the crowd and the disciples. Jesus doesn't condemn the crowd, neither should we. But he also calls us out of it. He calls us to something deeper. On multiple occasions, actually, the crowd, as they hear Jesus' words, they hear them and, and they walk away. It's important to understand how often in the Gospels, Jesus teaches the truth of the kingdom, and people are like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Many times in the scriptures, Jesus gives us the fullness of the kingdom, and people are like, I don't want anything to do with that. And this is actually one of those occasions. I mean, we have thousands of years of familiarity behind us, so it's easy to kind of take in these words of Jesus from a safe and comfortable distance. For, but as you're an original hearer of these words, this is deeply jolting. It, it, the cross, when he mentions the cross, it was perhaps and still is the most violent, horrific form of capital punishment that has ever been devised in human history. In Roman times, in those circles, to even speak of crucifixion was a taboo subject. It's something you just didn't bring up in good company. It was a death that was only reserved for those who were criminals or slaves or revolutionaries. It was for Rome to make a point that if you cross us, this is what you 
receive. So when Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me and be my apprentice and be my disciple, you got to carry your cross too? It's a sobering moment. We have distance, but I, I pray this morning that we feel the weight and even the jolt of Jesus' words. If you want to follow me, you have a cross waiting for you. It should be sobering. What Jesus makes clear here is that there is no pathway forward with him that doesn't lead to the cross. There is no discipleship on the road to self-actualization. So while we may not find ourselves being killed for the name of Jesus, which many of the disciples would literally lose their life for the sake of Christ. Many, even still today, are martyrs for our faith. The truth remains the same, that for all of us, any of us who would come after Jesus as apprentices, following Jesus means that we are coming to the end of ourselves. We are coming to the end of what we thought we were to be. Following Jesus means that you and I, we are actually confronting the places in us that need to die so that we can actually live. And here's what you and I need to wrestle with today as we look at a passage like this. We need to know what does it mean for us in 21st century, in our actual lives and context, what does it mean for us to carry our cross? I don't know about you, but I came to faith when I think about the cross with an understanding that it was little more than a mechanism for my salvation in the afterlife. The cross was something that Jesus did to get me to heaven, but it had very little relevance to my actual life, right? Jesus, in my understanding of the gospel at least, was this. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and if I believe this, then I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That was the gospel for me. That was the gospel that many times as a young man I shared with other people. And listen, I want to be clear today. That's true. But that's just like one little bitty piece of the truth. One little bitty part of what the cross means. It is far from the totality of the truth and the wholeness that we find in the cross of Jesus. The cross by by which we have been forgiven, yes, by which we have been restored back to God, yes, the cross that reconciles us to the Father through the death of His Son, yes. But it is far more than just a theological mechanism that produces salvation. We see this in, in Jesus' invitation. The cross is not simply the means by which we find salvation, it's the model he's called to us in our lives, the model that we've been given for how we are to live as his apprentices. Jesus doesn't even say, if you want to be my disciple, trust in the work of the cross. He doesn't say, if you want to be my disciple, then know all the right atonement theories and everything that you're theologically supposed to tie together. He says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. Now listen, my friends, trusting the work of the cross is important, yes. Understanding the fullness of how many ways the cross has saved us and the, the atonement for our sin, all of this is vitally important for our faith. But if you just take Jesus' words, he says, if you want to be an apprentice under me, follow me, 
You've got to carry that cross and not just believe in it. You've got to pick it up for yourself. You have to learn to come to the end of yourself. Now, I can't speak to, to, to your experience in this. I, I have always struggled with this idea of dying to self. Not because I'm, I struggle with dying to self. I just The idea in and of itself felt very spiritually defeating. Like this sort of like spiritual buzzkill that I have to go through in order to be a Christian. Like, you want to be a Christian? Die. It just was, it felt, I don't know, it just didn't feel right. And, and it, I kind of, as I've grown older, trying to name what that feeling was, it, Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management. And, and from my understanding, what, what, what this was, as we walk with Christ, as we followed him and take up our cross, we become more and more aware of our sin and our pride and our brokenness. And as we do, the Bible tells us, and this is true, the Bible tells us to put that sin to death, to die to our old self, to die to the old patterns of the world. Once again, all of this, true. But here's what I struggled with, and here's, I think, able, I'm able to name this now, is the entire point of what I have to look forward to as an older Christian, just the same version of me that sins less. Is that all there is? Is there just me coming forward and growing older and, and my maturity is just marked by the fact that I don't do the stuff that I used to do? Is that it? Because if that's all, sure, that's, that gives you some hope for something, that you're a good person. It gives you some hope that there's an afterlife. But I was hoping there'd be something more than the same person that just sins less, Right? Am I allowed to say that? I mean, that feels noble. It feels very spiritual, but it feels also very hollow. And if the Bible only presents the cross as this mechanism, this divine mechanism that saves me for heaven, then I guess that's the best we can do. I guess that's all we can do because it's a spiritual but a very joyless vision for our future. It's an empty, loveless vision for the Christian life that, that gives you nothing more than what you have to look forward to this, uh, in this life is just being less of a sinner. And you know what? When you live that way, and even when you sin less, you know what you become? There's a theological word for this. You become a butthole, really. Think about it. I mean, the people I know that this is their gospel, that the whole point is just go forward and don't do all the sin. If they succeed, they're mean. And if they don't succeed, they're racked with guilt and despair and defeat. And some of them just leave the faith altogether. Because if they think this is all there is, is me just sinning less, and if I keep failing, What's the point? And if I do succeed, look how much better I am than those people out there. As we come to the cross, we have to ask, is that the gospel? Is that why Jesus died? Just to make you a better person. 
as you wrestle with the cross, we, we, we have to find ourselves asking, you know, God, I know I'm, what I'm freed from. I'm freed from sin, yes. I'm freed from the power and the penalty of sin. But, but you and I need to ask, what are we freed for? I know what I'm freed from, but surely I'm freed for something. And the answer, I think, that the Scriptures testify to over and over and over again is very clear. You are freed by and for love. You are free to receive and give love. When we look at the cross in the scriptures, it's not just spoken of as this mechanism of how we get salvation. It's talked about as the supreme revelation of the character of God. And as God is fully and finally revealed in all of his self on the cross, paradoxically, it is the full revelation of what love actually looks like. First John tells us this. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Listen to these three words. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is not a feeling that ebbs and flows with our circumstances. Love is not the sum of the chemicals and, and synapses that are crossing through our minds and our bodies. Love is defined as a God who sees us where we are, a God who sees us as we are in sin, brokenness, pain, and he comes to us. The Bible says that is now for you and me the definition of love. Theologian Will Williman, he was once asked with many other theologians to sum up what is the gospel in seven words. Here's how he responded. God refuses to be God without us. Oh, man. I, I'm about to kick this over again. That right there. God refuses to be God without us. He continues, we asked God to say something definite. And God, getting personal, sent Jesus Christ. We were surprised. God was other than we imagined. We can't make God into whatever we please. Jesus demonstrated that God is better than omnipotent, omniscient, or any other high-sounding abstraction. God is a love embodied, nonviolent, relentlessly seeking, convening, suffering love. I know that for many of us, including myself, we have often been given a counterfeit gospel that has no better news than you are bad and Jesus died to make you good. The cross was simply God's way in this vision of making bad people a little more good so that when they go to heaven, they have a few less scars. And the only way to measure whether or not you're growing is the frequency and the severity of your sin. And that is for you if that's the gospel we've believed. And carrying our cross is little more. What I only thing I would have to say to you today is this transactional attempt to stop sinning to please God. This transactional understanding that I have to do everything in my power to stop it so God might know and see me and love me. But I want to, with joy today, share the gospel with you. God was willing to suffer even death for you. 
to suffer brutality, the brutality of the cross, that the love we were made to know and be known by might finally and forever be ours. Out of God's infinite love, Jesus bore the weight, the penalty, the power of our sins so that nothing in all of creation, according to Romans 8, can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Your badness can't separate you from that love. Your goodness can't separate you from that love. Nothing can stand between you now because of the cross and the God who longs to be with you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Not that God died to make a bad person, a bad version of you good, but that God died to reunite you with the God who wants to be with you, to unite you with him by and for love. We need a hope bigger than stop sinning, right? We need a hope bigger than sin less. This is what it means, I think, to carry our cross. It is to allow us, allow all that's in us to die that hinders us to work and the work of love in us, to allow that to die so that love may come to life in us. What we are losing, I believe, when we actually die to ourselves is the only things, the things in us that separate us from giving and receiving love. The things that need to die in us, the real sin and brokenness, it's sin and brokenness because it's separating us from being able to give and receive love from God and our neighbors and even our enemies. When we repent, when we lay down and allow these things to die in us, what we see on the other side is not just a better person. We see a person who is able to give and receive love like the God who died for us. And that's way better news than sinless. Now, is that sometimes painful? Yes. I talked about it last week. Coming face to face with your own brokenness and sin is sometimes very difficult to do. But it is the grace of Jesus that looks at those places within us and says, I want that gone, not just to make you a good person. I want that gone so you can know this love fully. I want you to give and receive love. What God is doing and calling us to surrender is nothing less than a surrender that is freedom in its fullness. Chris Green, again, he writes this on the cross. He says that in the cross, nothing good is taken from us or kept from us. All that is lost in this losing is what we truly long to be free of. Everything false, foul, vicious, cruel, diseased. The truth hurts to be sure, but it never harms. In fact, it hurts only because it reveals how we have been harmed. God humbles, but never humiliates us, never desires our shame. As we heal, he becomes more, we become more fully ourselves, not less. That last line I want to say again because it's so important. As we heal, we become more fully ourselves, not less. As you hear the words of Christ today saying, come, after me, follow me, and take up your cross. I know for many who have gathered in a room like today, you are still filling the weight of gospels from your past or maybe from your present that give you very little hope other than 
just try to be a better person. And what you've been invited to today in being apprentices and following Jesus is more than just being good. It's being whole. It's being alive. Jesus came for us not just to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive, to make broken people whole, to make people who are unwilling and unable to give and receive love whole that they might love like the cross teaches us to. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. We have elements here on this table here in front. We have some in the back as well. Lobby, I believe, too. This every single week is a cross reminder, is a cross reorientation, is a remembrance that you have come into a room like this that God has already in Christ declared you free by his sacrifice on the cross. So as you take this cracker representing his body, this juice representing his blood, we do this week after week because you and I need tangible reminders, tangible, weekly, regular reminders that we have been freed to love by the cross. So we take these elements together, remembering this as we respond in worship. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I don't want to preach a symbol today. I don't want to preach just simply a theological idea. I want us to come to the truth, the revelation that we are loved, with the cross being the primary vision of what that love looks like. So Lord, where we are leaving behind not only sin and brokenness, but sometimes leaving behind gospels that taught us to see lesser visions of you, hopeless visions of our future in the Christian life that were loveless and joyless. But today we can take these elements remembering that what you have done in and through your son has made a way for us to give and receive and be the love you've seen on the cross, would you help us to take up our own today and follow you, that what may die in us may free us for the love that you have given us today. We pray this in